And so what I, want to, what I want to bring to your attention today, and if you take your Bibles in hand, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 3. The focus that we're going to be looking at is going to be verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. But just for a little bit of context, I am going to begin by reading in verse 13. So here now the word of God, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now to the difficult portion, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's, when God, when, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. And so I hope you saw the difficulty there, particularly when you get into verse 9, this depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ descending into prison and then preaching or proclaiming something to these spirits. And so how exactly are we to interpret it? Now, most interpretations that I would disagree with, and by the way, a lot of people who would interpret it and want interpret this text in one of these ways are people that I love and respect. Uh, people like uh, John MacArthur, for instance, is going to have a have an interpretation of the text that kind of falls into this category. But and rather than going through every one of them, because there's like 20 different interpretations of this text, at least that I've come across, most of them are going to interpret this text as meaning that Jesus, after his death, descends down into hell and proclaims the gospel to the souls of the of the lost in in some in some way and there's there's a few big problems with this uh first of all it's just a descent into hell you know i'm thinking right now well wait a minute don't we recite the apostles creed every sunday doesn't that mention something about christ descending into hell well we need to interpret that correctly as well. The authors of the Apostles' Creed, by writing that, did not think that Jesus was going down into hell to give people a second chance for salvation. 
Uh, there's really two ways that we can interpret that, and I think both of them are, 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 are viable ways of interpreting it. One is that hell there is a reference to the Greek idea of Hades, which is just a reference to a place of the dead. And so it could very well be interpreted as being even heaven. Uh, as, as Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The Greeks really didn't separate the idea of, of hell from heaven. It was just a reference to, to Hades. But I think the best way to interpret this, and this is the way that John Calvin interprets it, the way that St. Augustine of Hippo interprets uh, that, that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, is that by a descent into hell, this is a reference to his sufferings upon the cross. And so I think it's a mistake when people think of hell as being more of a place. And that's how most people think of it. You think of the, the cartoons, the devil with a pitchfork and a forked tail and a cave with fire and lava boiling and things like that. The ancient church, and I think the Bible itself, thinks of hell as being less of a place and more of a presence. A presence of the unmitigated, just wrath of God. And if that is what hell is, then the cross was hell for Jesus Christ. It was upon the cross as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because the, his awareness of the mercies and the kindness and the gentleness of his father had been removed from his vision and all that he is aware of at that time upon the cross is the wrath of God being poured out upon his son for the sins of his people so that his people might be reconciled to him, that is hell. Upon the cross, Jesus bears in his body the hell that we deserved. And so that's how I and many people in the history of the church have interpreted the Apostles' Creed saying that he has descended into hell. And so I don't, think that's, I don't think we should interpret the Apostles' Creed as meaning that Jesus went and preached to lost souls in hell, giving them a second chance, nor do I think we should interpret uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 as this saying that Jesus descended into hell to give people a second chance. The idea of a second chance is foreign to the word of God. It simply is not there. This is the only life you have apart from the resurrected life, which either leads to the second death or leads into eternal life. The call to repent is an immediate call to repent. Do not tarry. We do not know what waits for us. We do not even know if you will be able to walk out of here. When we are called to repent and to believe upon Christ, it is a call to do it immediately. Some people, Catholics particularly, look at this as being a proof text for the existence of purgatory they would look at this and say well this is jesus going to these people who they were repentant of their sins in the old testament but they were not repentant enough and so jesus went down there to say look i've accomplished all these things now you really need to be repentant once again this is a foreign concept in the bible the bible leaves no room for this idea of 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 a something between heaven and hell where you get to make up for the lack in your own sanctification, the lack in your own faith. That spits in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either he is fully sufficient to save you or he is not sufficient at all. 
Those who are in Christ Jesus lack in nothing. There is no need for purgatory for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's also some textual issues. And that textual issue is really Noah. If Jesus descended into hell to proclaim the gospel to those who did not have a chance to hear them or did not have a chance to repent quite enough, why does Peter single out those spirits during the days of Noah? Why not the days of Abraham? Why not the days of Moses? The days of David? Why just the days of Noah? And that's where we need to begin in going through this text. And I think that's a very important question. Why the days of Noah? Let's begin by looking a little bit at the context uh, of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is being written to a group of Christians in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter to warn them that at this time, church life is pretty good. It's very similar to our way of doing things. We have peace. They had peace. But Peter is warning them because he said under the teaching of Christ, that is not going to last. You have a cross that you must pick up. They hated the master. They will certainly hate the savior. Brace yourself. Persecution is coming. And that's what I, that's why I started reading there in verse 13. He is telling them, persecution is coming for you. But if you are going to be persecuted, let it be a persecution for the sake of righteousness. Do not be persecuted for doing evil. That's not persecution. That's just justice. But if you're going to be persecuted, let it be known that you are being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And then we get into verse 18 where Peter offers us an example of being persecuted for righteousness sake. And that is the example of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's really a shame that the rest of it is so difficult to understand, because that is probably the best one verse summary of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. The righteous suffering for the sake of the unrighteous. He who knew no sin, he became sin. That's the beginning of the gospel. And why did he suffer for the sake of the unrighteous? So that he might bring the unrighteous ones to the presence of God and present them as blameless before his throne. And how did he accomplish that? It is through his dying and his resurrection. You have all of that right there in that one verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But now here comes the trouble, verses 19 through 20, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What is the action that Jesus is taking? This is a great way to, whenever you get to a difficult text and that you're having a hard time understanding, ask it questions. 
What is the action that Jesus is taking as he descends to, to proclaim something to these prisoners? Well, it's that word proclaiming. He is preaching. He is preaching something. What exactly is he preaching? The answer is quite simple. It is the gospel. The Greek word there for proclaiming is the Greek word keruso. It's not always used in reference to a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time that it is used, it is used to reference the preaching of the gospel. Well, when did he preach the gospel? Peter tells us, in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, Jesus Christ proclaimed the gospel to those disobedient spirits. Well, how in the world does Christ proclaim the gospel thousands of years before he was born? Well, Peter, this is, this is not something we have to guess at. He tells us, look at how verse 18 ends, segueing into verse 19. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This was not Jesus bodily going and proclaiming to the spirits in the days of Noah. By way of the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. And how did the spirit speak in the Old Testament? Well, through prophets, one of which is Noah. Turn with me over a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, um, I'll begin in verse 4, but verse 5 is the real focus here. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. I bet you can't guess what Greek word there is translated as herald. Keruso. He was a herald, a preacher of righteousness through Jesus, by way of the Spirit, through the preaching of Noah, proclaimed the gospel to, this, to those alive, those, those disobedient spirits in prison in the days of Noah. That's what preaching is. That's what preaching is. It is the Spirit of Christ speaking through a very, very weak and unworthy vessel. I mean, just look at Noah. A man who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. A man who is righteous above everyone else in his day. And how does his story end? Drunk and naked. He was not a perfect man. But when he stood there and proclaimed that the just wrath of God was coming against all sin, and he begged and pleaded with the entire world that they would come into the ark and be saved from the wrath of God, guess what he was proclaiming? The gospel of salvation. That's what our gospel is. Judgment is coming. 
time will spare no one in this room. The wages of sin is death. And then there's even worse. There is a second death. The wrath of God. When we ask people, when we beg with people to forsake their sins, to repent of them, and to believe in Jesus Christ, we are asking them to come into the ark, which is Christ. This is what Peter is saying here. He is looking back into the Old Testament, and he is seeing Noah proclaiming the gospel, and he is seeing that ark through that, that carried those people, those eight people, the family of Noah, through the waters of judgment. He is looking back through, and he says, that is the shadow of the cross. That's what you see in the entire Old Testament. When Jesus there in Luke chapter 24 takes the disciples that he meets on the road to Emmaus and he sits down with them, he shows them how he fulfills every word of the Old Testament. That is what he is speaking of. The shadow of Jesus is cast deep into the Old Testament. And that is how we are saved. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for all. The question is, are you in the ark? And will you be carried through the waters of judgment? This is what, this is what, uh, this is what Peter means when he says that all of this corresponds with our baptism. We think of baptism as, a, as being a sign and seal. It is a sacrament. It is a, it is a picture of us being baptized into the blood of Christ, being baptized into his death, being washed clean by his blood. We also have the sacrament of the Lord's table, signs and seals of the broken body of Christ and the blood that is poured out for the new covenant, for the remission of sins. But both the table and the baptismal font carry with it symbolism of not simply mercy, but also judgment. Turn with me over real quick. Let's look at um, the Lord's Supper here. This is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he goes on to explain how many have become sick and even died because they ate of the table in an unworthy manner. That broken body, what broke the body of Christ? It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. It was the wrath of God. What calls his blood to flow like a fountain? It is the wrath of God. What, what Paul is saying here, the unworthy manner isn't being righteous enough. The unworthy manner is to partake of that table without faith. It is faith that takes the judgment of Christ and turns it into mercies for Christ's people. When we eat by faith. It is the same thing with baptism. 
when Peter says that baptism saves you, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that by applying the water, like how it washes away dirt and sand and all that stuff, he's not saying simply by coming under water that you are somehow magically saved. If that was the case, I would just have a, I would just have a water hose outside of Kroger, just hosing everybody down in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works, though. But, but, but baptism does save when by faith, we partake of the benefits of baptism, partake of the cleansing of the blood of Christ, being baptized in his death and resurrected into the newness of life. But apart from faith, baptism symbolizes judgment, the judgment that was had in the days of Noah. And so how are we to understand this difficult text that is just loaded with wonderful mercies. What is, what is Peter trying to tell his original audience? Well, think about it. This church is very small. And by this church, I mean the church in Turkey. It is very small. But they are surrounded by a world that hates them and wants to see them put down. Peter is coming to them and he says, There's, you're not alone and feeling like you're alone. And you're not alone and feeling like you're a small people. You remember Noah? He proclaimed the same gospel that you do. Did you see the apologetic text? Be, will, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. You're going to be given a reason for the hope that is in you, and people are going to despise you for it. The world is going to despise you for it. But remember, Noah did the same thing. He stood on the bow of that ark, and he pleaded with people, Judgment is coming. Come and be saved in the ark. Be carried through the waters of judgment and be saved. But how many people entered into the ark? Eight. Eight people. But that's not the number that matters. It doesn't have to be a lot. You don't have to be the majority. The world will come to you, and this, I've heard this so many times. Oh, you're just a Neanderthal. You believe that old stuff. Don't you know the world's changed? Don't you know that no one else believes that anymore? That's, this is not the first time that this has ever been an argument against Christianity. It was an argument in the days of Noah. It was an argument in the Turkish church here in First Peter. And it's an argument today. There is nothing new under the sun. But we don't believe in the gospel because it's the popular thing. We don't believe in the gospel because it is the majority thing. We believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is our ark and he will carry us through the waters of judgment and we will come out on the other side entering into the rest of our Lord, the rest of God being reconciled to him. Let's pray. Our most gracious heavenly father, this is the word of God, but it's not in all places easy to read. And easy to understand. Father, I, I thank you. I'm, I'm certainly not smart enough <laughs> to figure out some of the things. But Father, you have blessed your church with many giants. People that you have gifted with a, an ability to interpret and to teach and to explain. And Father, we thank you for through their work, we are able to dig down into these difficult texts and find the pearl of great price, to find the gems of your kingdom, 
the gems of the mercy of God found forth in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our ark. We thank you that he has carried us through the waters of judgment. And we now await your spirit to come and to bring us into your presence where we will glorify you forever. Father, convince us of this truth in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.